After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. The theme that I'd like to talk about is one that is often a kind of taboo in meditation circles, uh, and that is enlightenment. Um, And it seems with the level of practice and dedication that you bring to this program that begins, um, the sincerity really, the genuineness of it, um, it seems important in some way, especially on the Buddha's Day of Enlightenment, that we be willing to at least begin Uh, a heartfelt conversation since that word enlightenment or the possibility of liberation, freedom, there are a number of other words that are used, um, is really central to Buddha Dharma. Um, One of my teachers said, if you see a, a Bodhi tree leaf, the shape of a Bodhi tree leaf, and it has a big body and then it ends up in this one little point. And all the teachings of the Dharma end up in this one little point, which is um, liberation. So it seems a worthy conversation, yes? Um, and also it invokes um, the... I'm not quite sure what the right word is... Um, I was going to use the word seriousness, but it's not the right word. Um, the genuineness of our coming together and practicing in this way. So before we do anything, if you could raise or ask any question about enlightenment, what would they be? I'd like, just like to hear from you out loud some of your questions. It, you know, don't be shy about these. Because you, usually you're not allowed to ask these things, right? So I'm not saying we're going to give you the answers, but we want to know the questions. How do you know when you get there? How do you know when you get there? That's a fabulous question. Is it possible in this lifetime? Is it possible in this lifetime? Great. Even though somebody I know has helped um, edit that book by Upandita called In This Very Life. 
but that's just the title, and we know, you know, the cover and title are not necessarily the plot inside. So it's a great question. Next. Is it a place that one goes? Is it a place that one goes? Great. What is the unconditioned? What is the unconditioned? Are you, or do you know anyone who is enlightened? Am I? <laughs> or have I ever been? <laughs> or do I know? There does seem to be some taboo about teachers acknowledging that they are enlightened. I'm wondering about that, what that's about. What, what's the story with that taboo? <laughs> really, especially because there's a book I was reading this weekend by this guy, Daniel Ingram. I'm trying to remember the title of it. Something like, um, you know, The Real Dharma. Somebody remember the title? Hardcore, Hardcore Dharma. And it's, um, and the, it's Daniel Ingram, comma, Arhat. You know, so enlightened one, just so you know, you know who, who's writing it. And I thought, well, that's, you know, PhD, MD, and Arahat. <laughs> Some people aren't shy, I guess. Okay, what else? If one doesn't necessarily hold so dear the notion of reincarnation as it is viewed uh, in the East, how does one work with the peace of enlightenment that is seen as the escape from the cycle of birth and death. How do you work with the escape from samsara if this is the only life you have? Thank you. It's just great to air this out. I admit to every once in a while looking back at ignorance as being enviable. And I wonder if there is um, someone who has gained enlightenment that would like to give it back. <laughs> would like to give it back. That's great. That's a fabulous question. Can we have moments of enlightenment? Are there moments? And if so, how do we keep from grasping them and wanting to hold on to them? Fabulous. Especially if there's a moment of non-grasping. Then what do you do, right? Is it possible to define enlightenment if one is not enlightened? Thank you. Um, in the beginning of my practice, I got confused as to the different traditions. Can, oh, um, can you explain why the, the split in the beginning or way back in the early days of the Mahayana and the Theravadan view of enlightenment? Ah, can I explain the, the difference in Mahayana and, and Theravada views of enlightenment? Thank you and why the enlightened beings put each other down. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's weird, isn't it? But they do. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. One of the last things the Buddha said in his first talk was that this is the last becoming. Um, how did he know, and how can he have just touched the earth and said, this is so, without having some other kind of external verification. So how could he know? Thank you. Are there more than, more than one form of enlightenment? And are there different meanings of enlightenment to different people? More than one forms of enlightenment, more than different ones for different people. For yes, different... in terms of definition and what, they mean, what it may mean to them. Yeah, thank you. A few more. I'm sure I don't understand the idea of enlightenment, but I've gotten this 
thought or this idea in my mind that it has to do with giving up this life, this cycle of samsara. But I love this life, and I don't really want to go away from this life. Right. So you want to know, can you get enlightened and still have dark chocolate with Ple- almonds? Well, right? no, but no pleasure and joy and also sadness and loss. And yeah, do you I have to give up this life to, to, to get enlightened? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Great questions. What are the stages of enlightenment? And were the teachers who were unethical with their students really enlightened? Mm. I've talked to a few of them. Many of them, actually. Are they really enlightened? Can you catch it? Yeah. <laughs> is it contagious? Can you catch it? Is yeah, it? is it contagious? Yeah. Um, it, which I guess is kind of related to the role of the guru. The latest what? The role of the guru. The role of the guru. You know, can you catch it? it? Yeah. Um, and what is the role of suffering? What is the role of suffering? In along the journey to enlightenment. Ah, okay. We'll just do a couple more. There's so many good ones. We could spend the afternoon just with the questions, and that would probably be enough, really. Okay. So is, is wanting to become enlightened a form of grasping? Mm, another interesting and great one. Is wanting to become enlightened a form of grasping? Yeah, yeah there's a beautiful, maybe we'll get, it will get taught here at some point, there's a beautiful um, text, a sutta, called One Fortunate Desire. So, you know, we'll, maybe we'll get to that. A couple more. Once, uh, in, once enlightened, do you stay enlightened? Oh, do you stay? You mean it's like, if you're not a virgin anymore, is it like, is that <laughs> one of those kind of things? <laughs> um understanding the rebirths and how you, un- how you know you're being reborn and these rebirths that bring you towards enlightenment and, and understanding that in each rebirth, how that goes, that feels sometimes confusing to me. I think we should stop, what do you all... I mean, I've got, you know, 25 fabulous questions and, and I can feel there are many more and you'll be able to talk among yourselves some. Enlightenment is a really um, complicated word, as you can hear, and it means different things, and we have had different ideas, and not only that, they probably changed what you believe or what you imagine over the course of your spiritual practice. I have, in recent years, given um, one talk uh, on the nature of enlightenment, particularly at the two-month retreat. I wonder how many people have heard that one, that talk that I've given. Just a small handful. Okay. Great. I can use the same jokes then. That's good. Um, this is enlightenment, really, I'll tell you. Okay. Um, even within the Buddhist texts themselves, there are different languages and approaches and descriptions to enlightenment. So, for example, there's a passage in the text which, in which the Buddha says, just as the floor of the great ocean doesn't drop precipitously to the bottom depths, but rather gradually as the shelf goes out under the water, gets deeper and deeper and deeper, so too one doesn't go to enlightenment with a precipitous drop into the depths, 
but the course of practice and the course of enlightenment or liberation follows this like the gradual slope of the ocean floor. You have that. Then you have texts where the Buddha was seated in Vulture's Peak or in the cool wood at Tapoda or, you know, Jivaka's Mango Grove or one of those places and gave a discourse on the nature of impermanence and selflessness. And it says, oh, and by the way, all of those sitting in attendance, or many of them, on hearing these words, were enlightened. You know, and where's the ocean floor in that one? I mean, so there's that contradiction. There's the sudden and gradual, and for 2,500 years, um, there have been different views on that. Um, as you'll see as we go along, um, those of you who were schooled in the little ovals of examinations, when you get to E and it says all of the above, that turns out to be a very useful answer for many of these questions, quite, quite sincerely. Um, there's the kind of visions that people have of enlightenment as some old monk, generally it's in Asia, it's the monks and not the nuns. That's another interesting thing, is the feminine version of enlightenment different than the masculine version? You know, and does one even dare ask that question? Um, but usually it's like some old monk who's practiced for 80 years in some forest or some cave and they're there and they're all dried out and they're an arahant, you know, and um, maybe we've seen one once in a, in a lifetime or something. So it makes it pretty distant, doesn't it? And doesn't seem very accessible. And then, the, then there's the additional problems which your questions gave about the cosmology. Well, then do you, have to, do you have to take robes? Because in some texts, it seems to indicate that you do. But then in others, it doesn't. And again, there's the Mahayana and the Theravada and, you know, um, there in the Theravada, in, at least in the commentaries, it says that um, before you reach full enlightenment, you have to take robes as a monk or a nun. Um, you couldn't be a fully enlightened lay person um, in one place. And then uh, in the Mahayana, um, when you take bodhisattva vows, you vow not to put off your full enlightenment until you become a Buddha and all beings become awakened. But yet in all my practice with Tibetan teachers and Zen masters in Mahayana, I never once had anybody say, don't get enlightened. They all wanted you to get enlightened. So there are these really interesting contradictions. Then there are the more immediate descriptions of enlightenment. This is Ajahn Buddhadasa, the forest master from southern Thailand, who talks about nirvana. He said, nirvana is the coolness of letting go, of not clinging, the delight of experience when there's neither grasping nor resistance to life, just being. Anyone can see that if grasping and aversion were with us all day and night without ceasing, whoever could stand them? Under that condition, living beings would either die or become insane. Instead, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness, of wholeness, and ease. I mean, think about it in your life. How many of you like a good night's sleep? Isn't it an amazing thing 
to go to your bed. It's dark, generally. You know, and you get ready and you go, oh, sweet unconsciousness, please come. May it last long and be easy and the pillows be soft and wake and refreshed. And I don't have to be moi for like a whole number of hours or to solve problems. And it's so natural to us to let go in that. It's not scary even, is it? It's delicious. And I'm not saying that that's enlightenment, but it's the letting go of who we think ourselves to be in this mysterious way, over and over, regularly. And here's Buddha Dasa saying, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness and wholeness and ease, which includes good sleep. In fact, these periods last longer than the fires of our grasping and fear. It is this that sustains us. We have periods of rest that make us refreshed, alive, well. We have moments we are just with the world as it is. Why don't we feel thankful for this everyday nirvana? Interesting. Not in the caves, not in the Himalayas, not in robes, just this immediacy. But then there are the long retreats, and I've done my own long retreats and had periods where concentration became very strong and the body just became a field of sensations arising and passing like waves of the ocean, only tiny little ones like pixels on a screen and then it dissolves into light and then there's nothing and there's experiences of the void. turns out there's several different experiences of the void and things stop and they cease and they start again and you go, wow, was that it? You know, or, or is the light, the luminosity that it? Or you do metta on a deep retreat and you get to where you become metta or I did peyote ceremonies with Don Jose Rios, this wonderful 103-year-old Weichel shaman, and sitting up all night and rattling and throwing up once in a while from the peyote, you know, and then having this experience of becoming a redwood tree. You know, there's times when I've been, you know it on retreat, you go and you feel, you, you go to a tree and you touch the bark and you just feel like it's your sister or your brother. But then there's the time when you become the tree damn tree, you know? Oh, here I am. And it was complete, well, peyote helped, right. But anyway, <laughs> you know, here we are. And it was the purpose of it. Or you feel yourself swimming up the stream as a salmon. Because identity and consciousness can change. And so, well, this is from Alice Walker. She writes, one day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. And so there's one point where Zen Master Dogen, the founder of the Soto Zen sect in Japan, says, um, you may not be aware of your own enlightenment. Kind of just putting little snippets of answers that may or may not be true to your questions. Because you can hear the paradoxes in the landscape that even raising this question, what does it mean to be awakened? A moment of awakening. Um, you have walked in the mountains and or the desert or you've been there for a childbirth or your own child's birth or making love or listening to amazing music or a hundred other ways where the sense of yourself disappears. Or in the simplest, most beautiful way, 
you know, sitting there and drawing or writing, you know, and the, the greed of desire and the judgment and aversion drop, and there's just presence and being. Or sitting in meditation. Um, we all have these experiences, and then some of you have been around various teachers at times. Somebody asked about gurus. I think about, you know, all of the teachers, myself included, who went to spend time, not all, but many of us, many of us with Advaita teachers in India, with Punja and Nisargadon and so forth. And one of the most beautiful things that Punja did for our community, and he was a very wonderful Hari Lal Punja in Lucknow. He was a very wonderful teacher of non-duality in the tradition of Ramana Maharshi and so forth, who Joseph and Sharon and Howie and Carol and Sally and Guy, I think, and um, Sylvia and Anna and lots and lots of our teachers spent time with. I spent time with Nisargadot, who was in the same lineage. One of the most beautiful things about Punja is he could transmit this great field of freedom, but he would look at you and he would say, you know, you already know. You know who you are. You forget it, you know, when you're shopping or, you know, worried about things. But there is some deep knowing. This poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez, great Latin poet, he writes, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. And the one who will remain standing when I die. And there is in us a sense of that which is eternal, which is timeless, which is outside of our own identity. And we touch it in all kinds of ways. And so enlightenment is sometimes described as the deathless, the timeless, the, the pure, the transparent, the unalloyed. There are all these beautiful synonyms, a hundred of them in Buddhist texts. Purity, freedom, the the shelter, the refuge, the beyond, the deathless, cessation, the unoriginated, the unborn. And there are moments when we step out of time, because time is constructed by, by thought, and step out of identity. So one vision is the letting go of that identity. Then there are all these other descriptions of, the, of enlightenment as being the release from the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion that Buddha Dasa spoke about even in those moments of everyday nirvana, of neither grasping, nor resistance, nor delusion, when those drop away and there's a purity of being. I'm just babbling on, but it's, it's such a beautiful field to be speaking into. Um, there's another text, and uh, I'm not sure where this one is. It might be in the Samyutta, um, in which a person comes to the Buddha and says, um, you are a awakened one, and the Buddha says, yes. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, when you ask him the question, uh, are, are, you, are you enlightened? How do I know? You know, and so forth. 
the Buddha seemed to not be shy about that. Um, and, and then he, he said, I have a question to pose to you. How is it that a person can act so they will not be visible to, not be seen by the king of death? How can you live in such a way that you will not be imprisoned by the, by the king of death, by Lord Yama? And the Buddha's response was basically, was, um, if you do not take body to be I or mine, if you do not take feelings to be I or mine, if you do not take perceptions to be I or mine, if you don't take thoughts to be I or mine, if you do not take consciousness, any of the field of the aggregates, and say, this I am. For one who does not claim anything to be me, mine, or I or am, um, such a one will not be seen by the king of death. And so this really speaks to those moments in life which are a shift of identity, in which instead of being identified with body or personality or history, which is part of identity, and you need it in this paradox, you kind of, you know, you need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number, basically. Both of these things, as is said, um, but you don't want to be stuck in the reality of the social security number. You need to know that that's not who you really are in some fundamental way. And so both your story and these texts is the Buddha pointing to enlightenment as a shift of identity. Um, and uh, something really s small, but I think ter also terribly helpful. There's a moment um, when Ramdas was teaching and somebody raised their hand um, and said, would you talk about being Jewish? Because you do all this great you know, Hindu Buddhist teaching and so forth, but weren't you raised as a nice Jewish boy? And, and you know, what about the Jewish spiritual path? And Ramdas said, I was raised that way, as I was myself. And I was bar mitzvah. He said, I, Ramdas said, I was bar mitzvah too. You know, I went to temple and so forth. And, went through all that, and there are beautiful things in the Buddhist tradition, and in the Jewish tradition of, um, especially in the mystical Hasidic and uh, tradition and, um, you know, a long, long lineage of the Kabbalah and so forth. Um, so I respect that, Ramdas said. But remember, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> you know? And of course, he was very witty and quick-witted before his stroke. But there's also something extremely telling about that, because what it says is that who you are is in part limited by your parents, your culture, your birth, your birth, your the, the the your upbringing, the trauma you have, all the terrible things that happened to you in your childhood that we know about enough, that we know enough about, right, um, and all of that, that that's part of an identity and that needs to be tended to and healed, but it's not who you really are. And part of the question of enlightenment, there's different sides to this, is who are you really in this? And you know it, um, a beautiful, simple way to encounter this question is to go in the bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror and notice that you've aged, right? We do know that. 
Um, but that weird feeling that we get, if you really pause and look, is that you don't necessarily feel that much older, right? You know what I'm talking about? But it's, it's lost its fur, and it's got, you know, <laughs> wrinkles here and there, and it sort of, it does what it, and in that moment of seeing, it's as if consciousness, as the witness knows, well, hmm, you know, rental cars gotten dented and older, and so it's losing its panache a little bit in this way or that. But there's a, there's a simple and immediate sense that this isn't who I really am. Does this make sense to you all? And Thich Nhat Hanh, I was teaching with him um, in Los Angeles at this big conference for psychologists on um, Eastern Western psychology, two or 3,000 people at UCLA a couple of years ago. And he started with the story of being in his little hut in the highlands of North Vietnam, and he was a young monk. And he said, the day that my mother died, and she died when he was like 23 or something, that the day my mother not died, I wrote in my journal, a great um, misfortune and sadness has befallen my whole life, because he really loved his mother. Um, and he said, I grieved for more than a year. And then one day, lying in my little hut, in the middle of the night, I woke up from a dream, and I dreamed it, that my mother was speaking to me, that she'd come, and her long black hair was flowing down, and she was wearing that beautiful Vietnamese Audi um, silk, um, and talking to me just as clearly as I'm speaking to you now. And I had this very clear sense that my mother had not died, that she was with me. And the moonlight was streaming in the window, and I went for a walk out among the tea plants. And I had the realization that my mother was there walking with me, and that as the moonlight touched my skin, it was my mother caressing my skin, that same soft caress of a mother touching my skin. And I realized that the notion that she was gone was just an idea, and that she was always with me and always will be, and that... I looked down at my feet, taking steps in the damp evening earth, and I saw that they weren't my feet, they were her feet, and my grandmother's feet, and my grandparents, my great-grandfather's, and that this body was our body, and that my mother could never die, that she was in me, and that death itself was untrue. He started this conference for therapists on this note. <laughs> And it was, it was really beautiful because it opened the gateway to seeing from a different perspective that's not just the perspective of the ordinary solidity of self and who we think we are. Does this make sense? And it's so beautiful that we can open that door and gateway and listen um, and affirm one another. That affirmation is exceedingly important. Oh, there's so many stories to tell, but you know how it is, so little time. Um, and there are these beautiful accounts of Zen masters or people having their experiences of awakening in various forms. But this one, here, here I am, a Buddhist teacher, quite a well-known Buddhist teacher, 
with many, many hundreds, now thousands of students, some of whom experience these powerful meditative openings of dissolving into light or having a sense of unity with things or, you know, the silence beyond the self. And, and this has not been my way or my experience. For a long time, this was the hardest thing for me to accept that nothing happened. I'm not a person with big dramatic experiences. For 30 years now, it's simply been a process of practicing without being caught by my own ideas of discouragement or success. I would go for months of intensive training and no spectacular experience would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 years. But at least I never got trapped into believing I was some special spiritual person. Yet somehow things did change. What most transformed me were the endless hours of mindfulness of giving a caring attention to what I was doing. I learned that the inner dropping of burden was not going to happen for me all in one piece, but again and again. I simply dropped the burdens of my judgment, my fear of distrust of myself, of distrust of life, the tightness in body and mind. At some point, I discovered how automatically this tightness and grasping could arise. And with that realization, I started to let go and open to an appreciation of life as it played through each day, finding ease. The traditional teachings dawned on me that in reality, there is neither coming nor going, that from the reality of the present, nothing ever really happens or ever will. Seeing this was like a confirmation of what I already knew. I became less serious, less concerned about myself. My kindness started to deepen. Oddly enough, some of my friends tell me I've become more and more like myself. A little eccentric, maybe. They say that there's been a very big change in me, but it wasn't produced by any special or particular event. I guess it's simply the fruit of being present over and over. Maybe liberation is that simple. So that's especially important to read here because one thing that was sort of vaguely named but not made explicit, and it's tough in these conversations. Yes, there's the kind of inflation, look at me, but that's very rare. More often is the judging mind come in and say, well, this one, I'm not worthy, or this one doesn't count, you know, or I don't know something. But you do. You do, and you have, and you are. Um, and it's your birthright. It's what you're opening to.